In our reflections on the life of David, we've reached another very poignant chapter. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 20 today. Uh, It's on page 292 in these Red Church Bibles that we have here. And it would be a great help if you could turn there and keep your finger on the page. It is quite a long chapter, which is one of the reasons we haven't read it. Um, And we'll kind of go through it. Um, I'll explain what we're going to do. This chapter is poignant because it begins with David depressed and angry and fed up in verse 1. And it ends with David crying his eyes out. It it says at the end of verse 41 that David and Jonathan kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. At the end of this chapter, David is separated from his best friend and forced into exile. So this is a very poignant chapter that begins with depression and ends in tears. I don't know how you came to church today, but David is a man who is struggling at this point in his life. Now, I'm conscious that this is talk seven of uh, this series, and if you're dipping into this for the first time, we should maybe uh, pause and reintroduce the three main characters. I I hate it when people say to me a story and they talk about people they know as if I know them. Bob did this and Fred did that, and I'm like, just slow down and tell me who Bob and Fred are before you tell me the story. So if you don't know who these characters are, let's just do that. Basically, there is a king uh, called Saul. Um, Saul is basically beginning to unravel. God had made him king of Israel, the first king of Israel, but he has been a disaster because of his disobedience of God. And we know that God has already chosen David to be the future king, although I'm not sure whether Saul necessarily knows that. But either way, Saul is clinging to a throne that he's already forfeit. And he's becoming so paranoid that he's now pursuing David and trying to kill him because he perceives David to be a threat to his kingdom. The twist in 1 Samuel is that uh, Jonathan, David's best friend, is King Saul's son. Jonathan is actually the prince who ordinarily would inherit the crown when Saul dies. And Jonathan is actually an amazing character in this narrative because he is the one person in a way who graciously recognizes God's will and God's choice and accepts the fact that Jonathan, that that David is God's choice to be the next king. It's incredible how willing Jonathan is to put his own ambitions to one side in favor of the David who is his friend, who he loves and respects. So this little triangle is the key to understanding what's going on here. King Saul is going slightly mad. Jonathan, the prince, is incredibly humble. And David, as we've seen, is struggling, struggling to reconcile the promise that God has made to him that he's going to be the king one day with the fact that he has a massive target on his back and Saul's trying to kill him. In this series then, so far, we have been concentrating on the way that God is gradually forming and shaping David's character. Sometimes and often through very difficult life circumstances, And I think in this emotional chapter, I think there's a lot for us to learn about the the theme of security. I think one of the questions this narrative raises for us is this. Can we be secure when life seems insecure? That's the question that we're really thinking about today. Can we be secure when life seems insecure. On a human level, of course, the focus here is on David's friendship with Jonathan. So I'll give you a little arrow to illustrate that. That's what we're thinking about. 
And the big theme in this chapter is that both David and Jonathan are trying to work out whether it's safe for David to stick around or whether Saul is going so mad that David needs to go into hiding. David and Jonathan are trying to work out the answer to that question. But of course, the backdrop to their friendship here in this chapter are the promises that they made to each other back in chapter 18. Just flick back over one page to the beginning of chapter 18. And you'll see here that in verse 3 it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him. Here's the prince, the son of the king, making a covenant with David, a mere citizen. And Jonathan took off his robe and he gave it to David along with his tunic and his sword, his bow and his belt. What Jonathan is saying there is, I believe that you are God's choice to be the next king. He's, and he's making a covenant with David that he recognizes that issue. And there's a covenant here being made that is very profound between the two of them. In chapter 20, the word covenant appears uh, a few times. It's there in verse 8. If you want to flick back over the page, uh, we'll get to these verses in a little while. In verse 8, David says to Jonathan, As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. It's also there in verse 16. And although the word covenant isn't used, the idea of a covenant is there at the end of the chapter as well. Just look with me at verse 42. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Why? For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. That, that's the language of covenant, isn't it? They have committed themselves to one another and they've called God as the witness to the serious promises that they've made to one another. So the backdrop to this chapter is the very profound, deep and solemn covenant friendship here between these two men. I, I, this chapter is really all about the quality of a friendship that is rock solid, even when everything else all around them is falling to pieces. Their friendship is solid. When life seems insecure, here is something that we might call covenant security. This is a friendship that is heroic and sacrificial and a friendship that transcends the difficulties of the circumstances that these men are currently facing, particularly David, who's the object of Saul's wrath. So here's the plan. I want to use my slides and the notes in the program a little differently this afternoon. What, what I'd like us to do basically this afternoon is to walk through this chapter together. And if you look on the program, you'll see there that I've given you six headings. This chapter really breaks into six scenes. So if you've got the program open and you look at those six scenes, you'll, you'll know where we are as we walk through these six uh, scenarios, and that'll help you to know where we are in the story. But as we go through the story, and as we use the program to guide us with that, I'm going to try and build up on the slides behind me four different things about this covenant of friendship between David and Jonathan. Two of them are going to describe what their covenant is like, and two of them there we go. I'm amazed that I can see that. Normally that's just a blur up there. We're going to think about two features and two benefits of the covenant between David and Jonathan. And so as we walk through the chapter, we'll build that up and add those four uh, things, two on each side. I promise that'll make sense as we go through. The reason I want to set it out like this is because this human story of what's going on between David and Jonathan can also be read, I think, as a beautiful picture of the covenant security that we as Christian believers enjoy in our relationship with God. 
And so once we've identified these four two features and two benefits, I want us to land at the end in Romans chapter 5 that Abby read to us earlier, and we're going to see how those four things are part of our relationship with God. Does that make sense? So we'll walk through the story first, and then we'll land at the end with some applications from Romans 5. So if you've got the program there, scene one, I've entitled A Desperate Conversation. This is verses one to four. In the previous chapter, Saul is disintegrating and turning into what we might call psycho king. It's like, it, to me, it reads like a level of a Saturn's creed. David has to flee from Saul no less than three times. The first time he runs home, surely a man is safe in his own house. But Saul sends assassins there to try and kill him. He has to escape through a window with the help of his wife. Secondly, he then runs off to Bible college. David thinks to himself, I'm going to go to the prophet Samuel. He's a holy man. So he flees to Ramah, where Samuel runs what is basically a monastery for prophets. Surely, if I go to a holy place, I'll be safe, David thinks. Not so fast. Saul finds out where David has run to, and he sends his assassins to Ramah no less than three times. God frustrates their plans, and in the end, Saul himself personally comes to Ramah, intending to finish the job. With God's help, David again escapes, and he goes on the run for a third time. And so we arrive in chapter 20. And David is emotionally wrecked. And where is he going to run to this time? This time he seeks out his best friend, Jonathan, the king's son. And his obvious question is why? Let's read verses 1 to 4. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why should he hide this? from me. It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. This is a desperate conversation. David is depressed and fed up and angry. He knows Saul now is trying to murder him. The obvious question is, why? What have I done to deserve this, David says. Why is your dad trying to kill me? I think as we go through this, I want, to, I want you to notice the author is drawing our attention here to David's innocence. Although he is God's chosen king, I think the author means for us to see here that David does nothing illegal. He does nothing impatient. He does nothing underhand to get the throne. He isn't being sent away here for being disloyal to Saul. In fact, he's been Saul's best military leader, a model citizen. And neither is David running away because of some selfish ulterior motive. The truth is that Saul is unfairly hounding him and chasing him to kill him. And so David's cry is understandable. What have I done? What have I done to deserve this? The man is innocent. Jonathan's defense of his father is very endearing. In the previous chapter that Luke was uh, teaching as last week, Jonathan persuades his dad to welcome David back to the palace, and now here he feels sure that if his dad was trying to kill David, he would confide in him as his son. What one writer I came across says, 
It's encouraging to know that in a home where the father was suspicious of everyone, there could grow up a son who trusted everyone. It's true that, isn't it? It's encouraging to know that in a home where the dad was suspicious of everyone, there could grow up a son like Jonathan who trusted everyone. But David has to give him a little respectful shake. I think David here wants to say, Jonathan, don't be an idiot. <laughs> don't be an idiot. He gives him a respectful little shake and reminds him that Saul knows that they're friends. And, so, and he's hardly going to tell Jonathan if he wants to kill David, because the first thing Jonathan's going to do is go and tell David. And so Jonathan gets it, and in verse 4, he says to David, Okay, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Scene 2, verses 5 to 11. David's cunning plan. The very next day was a monthly feast in the palace. These guys seem to have had a feast on the first day of every month. I think that's a great habit for us to get into. On the first day of every new month, we should have a party. They did it here. They had a big feast on the new moon, first day of the month. And even though David knows that Saul is hostile, it seems that he is still expected to show up and take his seat at the table. So David's plan here in these verses is not to turn up. And the idea is that Jonathan gives an excuse. It's a made-up excuse about David having to go to Bethlehem. But it's more than an excuse, actually, because Jonathan is going to say that David asked him and that he gave his permission for David to go to Bethlehem. You can see that in verse 6. And the idea is to see how Saul reacts. So David's seat is empty. Saul notices, where's David? Jonathan says, he's gone to Bethlehem. He did ask me. I gave my permission. If Saul is calm, then the coast is clear. If Saul goes ballistic, then they both know that Saul is still being a psycho and intending to kill him. Now, we need to remember here that Jonathan is the crown prince. David here, although a military leader, is really an underling at this point in the story. Actually, before this, he's been a shepherd. In any other royal court, in any other ancient nation, why on earth would a man like David go to the king's son with this kind of plan? He would be taking his life in his own hands. But I want you to notice verse 8. David says, As for you, Jonathan, show kindness to your servant. See how humble David is? For you have brought him into a covenant with you, and not just any old covenant, you brought him into a covenant with you before our God, the Lord. If I'm guilty, kill me yourself. <laughs> Why hand me over to your father? Here's the thing. In his uncertainty and insecurity, David did have somewhere to turn. In all the stress and fear, there was a safe place for David to run to. David's great refuge was to go to Jonathan and plead the covenant. The word for kindness here is a Hebrew word that cropped up in the book of Ruth that we were looking at last year. The Hebrew word is the word hesed. And if you were here when we did the series in Ruth, you'll know that it means committed, faithful, devoted, determined love. So the first benefit of this covenant, we'll start on the right-hand side, is that this covenant for David was a refuge as his world was falling apart, here is the one place where he knew he could count on kindness and sanity. 
Jonathan was the one person in the world that he could trust to help at this point in his life. And sure enough, in verse 9, Jonathan comes up with the goods. In verse 9, Jonathan's almost offended. Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And then, Jonathan, then David asked the all-important all question. It's a cunning plan, but it has one major snag. Who's going to tell David the outcome of what happens on the first day of the month at this party meal? Who's going to tell him whether Saul is relaxed or going ballistic? That's a practical question, but doesn't it press home the issue of trust? If Jonathan is truly on David's side, he's going to have to betray his father's confidence to protect his friend that he has made a covenant with. In verse 11, Jonathan suggests that they go out together into the field. Maybe it was for secrecy, so no one would overhear such an important conversation. Scene three, uh, verses 12 to 17, I've entitled a surprising interruption. This scene is very odd and perhaps even slightly out of place at first sight because Jonathan doesn't answer David's question in verse 10. Who will tell me if your father answers harshly? He doesn't actually answer that until verse 18. Some commentators have said that actually verses 12 to 17, you could actually cut them out and this story would still flow. It's almost like this little five verses, six verses, is like a little interruption. Why? Well, first of all, Jonathan does reassure Davis, David in the strongest possible terms. Let's read in verse 12. Jonathan said to David out in the field, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, Will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. He calls God as his witness of the covenant friendship that they now enjoy. And he promises David that he's on his side. But then David has a concern of his own that I think is quite amazing. Jonathan has more faith than David here. Jonathan believes without a shadow of a doubt that one day David is going to be the king. David here is struggling to reconcile God's promise with the present reality of Saul's hatred and violence towards him, but Jonathan sees through the fog a future where God's promise is fulfilled and David becomes king. Jonathan is the prince here and David is afraid. And yet here, Jonathan is afraid of the one who is afraid. He understands that one day, David, when he's the king, is going to want to purge all of Saul's descendants. This happened in every ancient kingdom. When a new king comes to a throne, what's the first thing they do? They consolidate their throne by making sure that any potential rival from a previous dynasty is got rid of, let's say. So Jonathan here looks into the future, realizes that when David's the king, he isn't safe and his children won't be safe. And so he says to David, in verse 14, he actually pleads the covenant himself. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed 
And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And Jonathan goes on to make a new covenant with David to say, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. He's effectively putting his own dad in the Lord's hands and committing himself to David. It's incredible. I'm not your enemy now, so please don't be my enemy then. So the first feature on the left-hand side that I want to highlight is that this is the most unusual covenant you will ever see made. Because culturally and naturally, these two guys ought to have been enemies. If they were both being true to the times in which they lived, at this point, Jonathan should be knifing David in the back. And a few years later, when David becomes king, he should be getting rid of Jonathan, shouldn't he? So here are two men who would have been expected in their current culture to look after themselves by killing their enemies. But instead of obliterating each other, they become the closest of friends. Friends, isn't it true that our culture, our modern society, tells us more than anything else to look after number one? Do we not see here a different way? Because a covenant says, I'm not looking after number one. I will give you my committed, devoted, faithful love. Doesn't our society need that? This is why, for example, a Christian marriage is a covenant rather than just a convenient union for a little time. There's a radical call here for all of us to live for something way bigger than just our own selfish needs. Jonathan and David get there, and their covenant friendship is unusual and heroic in that sense. We can deal with scene four very quickly, verses 18 to 23. I've described as Jonathan's cunning plan. In this scene, Jonathan very simply comes up with a way of communicating to David the outcome of this very poignant meal. So he tells David to wait by a certain stone. And Jonathan will fire arrows. And if they go short, David can relax because he's safe. But if they go long, Saul is still mad and David needs to leave and go on the run. And just notice with me verse 23, Jonathan's keenness to undergird this plan by remembering this covenant. And Jonathan says, and about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. He's like, don't you break this covenant. You remember, this is between me and you before God. Jonathan's like, don't, don't break the friendship. Scene 5, verses 24 to 34. An explosive meal. I was nearly going to call this the volcano erupts. So the feast is held, first day of the month. David's seat is the only empty seat. And at first, Saul is suspicious, but assumes that David is ceremonially unclean. And so he's unable to attend. But then David's absent the second night as well. Imagine that, a feast at the start of the month that goes on for two days. So the first night is like suspicious, but lets it go. The second night, it all comes out. The volcano erupts and all the hot lava comes spewing out. Let's read from the end of 
27. Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked for me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I've found favor in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you've sided with that son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. What a meal. And Jonathan bravely defends his friend. Verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew, if he didn't know it already, that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from a table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he didn't eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. What a scene. What a scene it is. Jonathan's loyalty to David cost him the raging, furious anger of his psychotic father. So here's a second feature of their covenant. I want to suggest to you that it was heroic because it cost a great deal. Some of you know what this feels like to some degree, not that someone's trying to kill you, but you've experienced coming to faith in the Lord Jesus and your family doesn't get it at all. What are you doing? That's what Saul says to Jonathan. He speaks a true word, doesn't he, in verse 31. Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. But Jonathan, although disturbed by his father's outburst, is content he has already decided to put his own ambitions to one side and his dad simply cannot understand it. In his commentary on this passage, Dale Ralph Davis writes these words. What does Jonathan teach us? He teaches us this, that true life does not, does not consist in securing you and your kingdom. True life consists in reflecting God's faithfulness in covenant relationships. Jonathan had already acknowledged that the kingdom was God's and therefore David's. So Jonathan's life did not need to be centered on his ambition, what can I get? But on God's providence, what has God given? Even as believers, we need to be able to say, my reigning passion is not to make my way, my living, or my mark, or to gain my place, or to get ahead. That may be costly, but it is certainly liberating. And listen to this. Life does not consist in achieving your goals but in fulfilling your promises. I, I love that quote. Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in keeping your promises. Jonathan gave up the possibility of his own kingdom and chose instead to keep his promises, his covenant promises to David. He was generous rather than selfish. The selfish pursuit of ambition is often found to be empty anyway, isn't it? Jack Higgins, internationally famous thriller writer, was once asked in an interview, it's a great question this, what would you have liked to have known 
when you were younger? And he replied, I would have liked to have known this when I was younger, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. We humans are made for so much more than merely achieving our goals and ambitions. And Jonathan shows us a much bigger and more heroic and more unselfish vision than that. Scene six, verse 35 to 42, a painful separation. Um, if you haven't noticed, the World Cup started this week. I know some of you are Americans and you won't be interested. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Are America in the World Cup this year? I can't remember. No. Oh, no, they're not. <laughs> that said the wrong thing there. They're not in it. The World Cup started this week. I know that you're not all football fans. Ian Marriott told me that this week, very publicly. Um, I know you're not all football fans, but our nation, I'm sure, at some point, will experience the drama of a penalty shootout at some point. And you'll be hiding behind the sofa. Um, I think I read somewhere that England have never won a World Cup penalty competition. We've had three, apparently. So our luck has to change at some point. I, I was actually at Wembley in 1996 when England lost to Germany in the Euro Championship semi-final. And Gareth Southgate, I think it was, missed a penalty. I was there behind the goal and um, it was painful. And it was like the whole nation was holding its breath as each England player came up to take a penalty and then Gareth Southgate came up. He's a defender. He couldn't even kick the ball straight. And, and we're like, oh, no, he's going to miss. He's going to miss. And sure enough, he missed. And I remember walking across the Wembley car park with the friend who I went to the game with in silence. We were gutted. This scene in this chapter is like that, but 10 times worse. As David waits, crouching behind the stone that he's hiding... As Jonathan strides out to shoot his arrow, David crouches and he waits to see, is it going to go short? Is it going to go long? And this isn't a football game. This isn't any kind of game. His life hangs in the balance as he waits to see the outcome. None of this is in his control anymore. His life hangs in the balance on this shot. In a moment, he is going to find out if he can return home to his wife and to the safety of the palace that he loves and to the warmth of Jonathan's friendship. And if that arrow goes long, he's going to become a fugitive living in the hills and deserts on the run. What a moment. Alan Redpath caused the stone that he was hiding behind, David's stone of destiny. We can relate to that, can't we? This is a fork in the road of his life. He longs to go one way, but now he gets to find out whether God has other scary, difficult plans for his life. And the arrow goes long. Can you imagine? The poignancy of this moment as David slumps down, not because England have gone out again, this is the moment when his lonely exile begins. And we're going to follow him in that journey in the weeks to come. But isn't there an odd ending here? After the young boy who carries Jonathan's arrows, look with me at verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and he bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. Don't you think that's an odd ending? Go in peace. 
the king's trying to assassinate him. And Jonathan says to him, go in peace. This is the most painful moment in David's life so far. And Jonathan says that. Jonathan obviously can't mean that everything is okay, can he? Because it isn't. This is hugely painful for both of them. What he does mean, though, is, David, whatever happens, we will always be friends. Isn't that what Jonathan means? Go in peace. Whatever life throws up, wherever you end up living, whatever happens in this crazy world around us, we, you and me, are one. So the second benefit that this covenant provides, there's a short delay on that, is that this covenant provides for David peace in the midst of trouble. These broken circumstances can't break up the security of his friendship with Jonathan. So are you still with me? Here's the summary. This covenant between David and Jonathan has two features and two benefits. The features are that it was unusual because it overcame enmity. It was costly and heroic. And the benefit to David is that it provided a refuge for him to run to. And it gave him a source of peace even in the midst of his difficulties. Four things. So we said we were going to draw some spiritual parallels about security from this narrative. So please turn with me back to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to close with just some brief thoughts from that little passage that Abby read to us earlier. Romans chapter 5. This is on page 1132. As you're finding that, one of the great themes of the Bible is that God works powerfully and lovingly in human history to make a secure covenant with his people through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He commits his faithful, determined love towards us and all of the four things that we've mentioned are true in this spiritual relationship too. The great obstacle to our relationship with God. The great obstacle to our relationship with God is our sin that separates us from him and that would, in the end, incur his righteous judgment on our lives. The good news of the Bible's message is that God has initiated a covenant that is even more unusual and even more costly. God himself has overcome the enmity between us in the most heroic way. Look with me at verse 8 of Romans chapter 5. This is one of my most favorite verses in the whole of the Bible. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus actually is greater than Jonathan was. Jesus is the one who actually lays aside his own glory and comfort to die the death that our sins deserve. And he does this so that we can be saved from God's wrath and forgiven and reconciled to God. Through the cross, God reaches out to us to make his enemies his friends. And it leads to reconciliation and security through the cross. 
Just look with me at verses 9 to the end of that little section. Paul writes, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved through God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, they're the features of the covenant promises that God makes to us in his Son and through the cross. What about the benefits? Can you see that just like David ran to Jonathan when he had nowhere else to go, that God calls us to run to his covenant promises in the same way. This covenant that God makes with us through his son is a refuge in our trouble and confusion. We too have a safe place to run to. Take yourself to the God who makes an everlasting covenant with you. Like David said to Jonathan, go to God and say, oh God, please show your kindness to me because you've promised it. This is about God's character. Faith is trusting in the goodness and character of God. So put your belief, your trust, your hope in Jesus. If he was willing to leave heaven and come and die for you, he'll never let you down. Don't go to God and plead your own resources. Go to God and plead what he's promised you in Jesus. This very morning, I, I was reading Psalm 32 this morning. It says, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. And about halfway through that psalm, I didn't note down the verse. It's, this is a psalm of David. He says, you are my hiding place. Isn't that the gospel? To run to God and to hide in the covenant promises that he makes. Secondly and lastly, I hope we can also see that this gospel means that we have a real peace with God to save her. Whatever else happens to you in your life, Whatever goes wrong, underneath it all, if you are trusting Christ, you know the peace that comes from a secure friendship with God. Perhaps you're a person this afternoon who's made plans and they've been frustrated. Life hasn't turned out the way you hoped it would. Maybe you're a, you're a person who has hard days ahead because of that, that you would not have chosen if you could have chosen. You have anxieties, feelings of loneliness perhaps, or unworthiness. Perhaps someone's let you down. Or maybe something you hoped in proved to be unreliable. Maybe the arrow for you has gone long and your heart sinks. But even, though, even in all of this, even if the bottom falls out of the world, you, like David, can hear God saying to you, go in peace. Why? Because underneath it all, you are right with God and nothing can separate you from his love shown to you in Jesus. Friends, Christian peace, therefore, is not the absence of difficulties, is it? The Christian does not have peace because things are peaceful. In fact, Jesus himself said to his disciples in John chapter 16 during the Last Supper, 
in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble Jesus is saying the same thing in me you may have peace we're good go in peace in this world you'll have trouble friends a Christian has peace because even in his trouble he knows in his heart that someone greater than Jonathan has pledged his eternal friendship to him our question at the start was can we be secure when life seems insecure just read with me Romans chapter 5 verse 1 Paul writes therefore since we have been justified made righteous that is through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God not only so but we also glory in our sufferings why because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has who has been given to us this peace with God this joy comes to us in the midst of difficulties as it did for David there is a joy even in our sufferings because we know friends that this God is never absent from us he's actually using our circumstances to form and develop and shape our character and we have a hope that isn't empty or elusive or disappointing because God pours his love into our hearts by his spirit so that we might know covenant security our series is about character formation David knew it and if we're going to grow if we're going to make progress if we're going to become more like Christ we need to know that we're secure and the way for us to know ultimate security is to find our refuge in and to savor the peace of God's incredible and costly covenant promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ.